Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and we hope you're enjoying your Easter weekend. The 2021 session of the Kentucky General Assembly is now in the history books. Later this morning, the legislature passed bills that will make it harder for the public and reporters to get access to some information in Frankfurt and at the local level. A lot of First Amendment issues were discussed and Michael Abadi, a Kentucky attorney who specializes in First Amendment will be joining us shortly. But first this morning, there were several education bills passed in a flurry of action in Frankfurt, and Bridget Blom Ramsey is here from the Pritchard Committee for Academic Excellence. We'll talk about school choice, about full day kindergarten, a new pension scenario for teachers, and schools having that option to add an extra year for students who think they fell behind during the pandemic. We'll also look ahead to a statewide listening tour. Bridget, good enough to join us this morning. And I think something special that you wanted to do is make reference uh, to uh, the now late uh, Al Smith and, and all he did for the Pritchard Committee. And first, Bridget, just tell us uh, about that and your dedication of this interview to him and what the Pritchard Committee does. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Um, and Al Smith, um, who was a founding member of the Pritchard Committee back in the 1980s, and as you know well, Bill, the founding host and producer of Comment on Kentucky on KET, which you now host today, um, was fond of really pushing Kentuckians to improve education as a way to improve our state. In fact, um, one of the things that Al said, even in recent years, continuing to encourage Kentucky um, and the Pritchard Committee is that our greatest challenge as Kentuckians is preparing our students, our young people for the future economy and decreasing growing poverty that has taken hold in our state and has existed for decades. And so our work at the Pritchard Committee and um, everything we're talking about today with you um, is in honor and tribute to Al Smith um, and his push for all Kentuckians to work to improve our state. All right. Well, well said and certainly uh, worthy goals. Uh, and uh, we do want to uh, discuss uh, what happened in the legislative session. School choice was the uh, heavily debated piece of legislation late in the session. Uh, it passed. The governor vetoed it. That veto was overridden. Now that the dust is settling, what kind of changes will that mean for, for schools and parents and students going forward? Well, what it means is um, that uh, parents may have increased opportunity to, um, to benefit from scholarships for their students to private schools. Um, the way this works, um, the bill allows for a credit to a donor to a private school scholarship fund. Um, the credit is quite rich. It's 95 cents on the dollar. Um, so those who were opposed, including the Pritchard Committee to that piece of legislation, um, were, were opposed on the grounds of it being a spending of taxpayer dollars back in credits to donors. Um, currently, folks can donate to scholarship funds for private schools, but this enriches um, the, the incentive for folks to do that. It's capped at $25 million, um, so $25 million of um, state credit back to donors. So, you know, we'll see some, I think, folks uh, benefit from that, um, taking their kids to private schools with those scholarships. Um, and that may be a good choice for a family. What we know from research is that uh, private schools, public schools, by and large, do about the same job supporting our students. Um, so public schools are a good choice. 
and a private school is an option that a family can certainly avail themselves of and these scholarships will allow a few more families to be able to do that. Bridget, that bill really morphed into a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation before it was over and it also includes some ability to transfer within public school systems. However, that seems to be a little bit unclear to the districts as to how that might work, whether you might have the scenario of some districts recruiting students uh, from uh, from other districts and so forth that's right you know the bill started as an open enrollment bill uh, meaning that public school students could transfer across county boundaries or between independent and county school districts uh, more easily um, and so that's uh, it's not a new idea we've heard that idea discussed over time but I'm not sure we know exactly what the impact will be um, so it will be interesting um, to follow that in, in the years to come and see exactly how that impacts the system of public schools. Certainly could be a benefit to those families who live close to a county border or have a preference um, for their student to be in one county or another. So um, we'll be watching that to see kind of what the impact is over time. You know, the pandemic obviously was tough uh, and many students feel that they fell behind. Uh, and now school districts, have the option under another piece of legislation to offer an additional bonus year. Um, how much do schools, parents, and students have to consider uh, when thinking about that option? Because it is up to the school districts whether they uh, want to have this happen at the local level. Yeah, so I think this again is really about the individual needs of the student um, and um, how parents feel about that extra year. It shouldn't be, from our standpoint, a decision that's made because a parent feels like their student is not ready to take that next step into college. Our colleges need to be ready for our students, even with the impact of the pandemic. Um, but if there are other reasons that a student feels it's not the right time for them to move on, especially given the pandemic, this bill allows that opportunity. It will be up to local districts to make that decision. They may need to make that decision based on um, how many students are enrolling as freshmen and how many students as seniors might stay for another year. So they'll have to make those decisions, again, based on kind of local demand. Um, and parents will have to make that decision along with their student based on individual needs. You know, we're heading into a time here where there will be some assessment testing that will be going on among the students. Uh, many uh, people say, well, it's very likely that, uh, that kids may be behind where they would be. However, uh, there's this uh, question of, uh, did they get a benefit to, to by you know, having to innovate and having to uh, go through this, uh, this scenario that we have and, and, and use all this uh, technology quickly? Is it fair to say uh, that uh, kids are behind at this point or are we just in a, in a different place and, and we have to uh, deal with it going forward? You know, Bill, it's absolutely fair to ask the question, has there been learning loss? And to what extent has there been learning loss? Um, it's important, I think, for any of us in any field, whether um, it's in the workplace or looking at our own health, um, to know the status um, of where we are. In this regard, it's the status of where our students are with respect to the standards they need to meet. So assessing is important. Um, it's important just to know where our kids are and then to be able to take that information and use it for plans in the upcoming months through the summer months and even into next fall 
to make sure that we are in fact providing the supports to our students that they need to meet the reading standards, to meet the math standards, those core um, content uh, mastery areas that our students are going to need to progress into middle school, high school, and into post-secondary um, and be successful over their career. You know, one of the things I like to say to folks is 20 years from now, the marketplace, the, the, our nation, the globe is not going to say to these young people, oh, you were the COVID generation, so we're going to give you a break. So it's important that we know the extent of learning loss. Um, uh, Johns Hopkins University has documented that in fact there has been learning loss. It's important that we know in Kentucky the extent of that and we quickly as a state and local districts make plans with community-based organizations and families at the table to recover from that loss and accelerate learning. So we're on a path, back to Al Smith, we're putting our young people on a path to be competitive in the future economy. Bridget, another piece of uh, legislation passed by the 2021 General Assembly will change the retirement scenario now for future teachers. They will be required to work longer, 30 years, uh, to an older age uh, if they start their careers uh, later, and uh, the defined benefit uh, goes away. Do you have concerns about uh, the future recruitment of teachers uh, going forward? You know, I think one of the things that we've seen um, from uh, uh, young people as they consider uh, the option of going into teaching is that they want to be able to look forward to a career where they're going to receive a professional salary. Um, and that professional salary is a combination of the incoming salary that they can likely uh, receive in a field and the benefits that would be accrued to them in that uh, profession. And so I think looking at those future teachers in that way, that they're looking for something that is much more portable and is a professional wage that allows them to compete um, with their peers who are going into other areas, maybe the pure sciences or the arts. Um, and so I think thinking about those future teachers in a different way than we thought about um, teachers generally over time is important. Um, this bill started to do that. But I think there's going to still be more work to do to think about the salary that's needed for an incoming teacher um, to compensate on the front end for any losses on the back end. And of course, uh, the proponents of that legislation said this is the only way uh, for the retirement system to be sustainable over the long haul. Uh, Kentucky is set to get uh, some federal money, uh, of course, that is uh, being sent uh, from Washington. And part of that is going to be uh, spent for schools for all day kindergarten. Do you consider that a positive development? We say absolutely. So the General Assembly uh, appropriated $140 million for full day kindergarten. And that's in addition to the federal stimulus money um, of over $2 billion that will be trickling into our local school districts. Um, so the vast majority of school districts across the state already fund all day kindergarten. Um, so this is the General Assembly's, uh, an opportunity that the General Assembly is, a, um, is making to invest in local districts in a way that frees up any local tax dollars to be used for other uh, priorities, like increasing third grade reading and math proficiency. So as this money flows into districts, we would really encourage a strategic approach with those dollars that have been freed up to ensure greater outcomes for our students. 
You have uh, something interesting coming up, uh, sort of a, a virtual listening tour, uh, and then there's also this uh, family leadership summit uh, that is uh, coming up, an opportunity uh, for people to get involved in the, the kinds of things that the Pritchard Committee advocates for. That's right. So the Family uh, Leadership and Education Summit is uh, April 15th and 16th. Um, it's all virtual um, in this day and age, and it's an opportunity for families, uh, community members to hear conversations um, and to be part of training regarding why it's so important that our communities, schools, and parents all come together to make plans for our students, to better understand the equity issues uh, that have been exacerbated through the pandemic, and to be part of local solutions. So you can find more information on our website, PritchardCommittee.org, about the Family Leadership Summit coming up next week, um, and we encourage folks to tune in. All right. Well, just overall, as we close here, as you look back on the session and look forward uh, in Kentucky uh, education, uh, are you encouraged? Uh, do you, you think uh, Kentucky will, uh, will continue to, to progress uh, in education? You know, Bill, we are encouraged. Um, two years ago, we launched a big, bold ask of the legislature that um, was a billion dollar request over six years for increased investment in education. And what we saw coming out of this General Assembly was um, additional investment in childcare, additional investment in full day kindergarten, and significant additional investment in post-secondary education, um, which we need to underscore. Because the way for Kentucky to truly get ahead in the years to come is to ensure that more Kentuckians have the educational attainment that is necessary for them to compete. So we would encourage our universities across the state to ensure they're holding the line on tuition because we know Kentuckians are saying they're worried about affordability. Um, and increased post-secondary education is the path forward for our state. The last thing I'll say there that, um, uh, that I would encourage Kentuckians to ask students locally if they've filled out the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. Um, students who fill that application out are much more likely to go on to college and stay on a college campus and complete their degree. Kentucky's um, applications right now are down 17% relative to past years. So if we're gonna move forward as a state um, and uh, we're gonna reach that competitive advantage that we know we can for Kentuckians and for our state, post-secondary education has to be at the core. Um, and our General Assembly really did a terrific job ensuring new investment all the way through the pipeline, early childhood, K-12, and post-secondary. And the state is now set to benefit from billions of dollars in federal investment. So yes, I'm hopeful we've got a real opportunity if right. folks will come together and make good plans. Bridget Blum Ramsey from the Pritchard Committee. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it as always. Thank you, Bill. And we'll catch up again soon. And we hope you'll stay with us in just a moment. We'll talk about some of the First Amendment issues that came up during the legislative session. We're back with that on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. The General Assembly dealt with several issues that sparked debate about open records and the First Amendment. Michael Abadi is an accomplished First Amendment attorney who advocated for the Kentucky Broadcasters Association and the Kentucky Press Association, and some of those issues kept popping up. Mr. Abadi joins us now on Kentucky Newsmakers. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. 
My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, during the back and forth in Frankfurt, you wrote that there were assaults on the First Amendment. And uh, although uh, some of the measures that you opposed ultimately did fail, but let's talk about uh, open records first. Are you concerned that the results of the session will make some of state government less transparent? Well, we certainly had some movement in the wrong direction, I would think. Um, we were able to cabin the damage, I would say, to prevent serious erosion of the underlying substantive bases for um, withholding records under the Open Records Act. But we certainly saw some troubling things, among them the General Assembly exempting itself uh, from judicial review of its own decisions under the Open Records Act. And while I think that is potentially an unconstitutional bill, it is now the law of Kentucky. Um, and some other reforms to lengthen the amount of time that agencies have to respond. Um, and so we certainly did not see bills moving in the direction of more transparency. You know, there are often unintended consequences from well-intended legislation. There was a bill aimed at protecting police officers, prosecutors, and judges from harassment. But in its original form, it would have prevented the media from naming legal participants in a situation. Yeah, that is exactly right. The original form of that bill um, which also reappeared as a committee substitute and as a floor amendment, uh, would have been truly an unprecedented uh, intrusion into the First Amendment. It would have made it a crime to publish a news story about Governor Andy Bashir, who was a former attorney general and a prosecutor. It would have been a crime to publish a story about the sponsor of the bill, who was himself a former Kentucky State Police trooper. We're not aware of any law in the country anywhere that would have criminalized basic news reporting on matters of public concern like that. Um, and we strongly opposed bills like that as they cropped up throughout the session. And there was another bill, uh, again, designed to uh, protect police officers who do a job that most of us uh, would not want to do, uh, that would have jailed people for saying something that an officer considered to be insulting. Uh, it would have you know, tightly defined uh, as well, what is considered a riot, and, and I know you had a lot to, uh, of say on that, Bill. Yeah, we were very concerned about that one, Bill. I mean, again, we understand the concern about protecting police officers and judges, and, and we don't have a quarrel with the proposition generally, but it has to be done consistent with the First Amendment. And the bill you're talking about, uh, again, would have, would have defined the criminal offense by the subjective feelings of the police officer or the public official who was on the receiving end of criticism. And that's just simply not constitutional in America. It also, I will note, in its original forms, would have deprived anyone convicted of insulting a police officer of all public assistance benefits you know, whatsoever under state law, which seems just cruel and uh, spiteful and meant to stifle speech, critical of the government at a time when, frankly, there is a lot of public outcry um, around issues related to policing and uh, and government generally. And there was a lot of talk about, uh, you know, how would you determine what was insulting? Because there, there were things that it might, you know, words that might not bother one officer that, uh, that certainly would another. And uh, how do you enforce that when it goes to court? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's one of the constitutional problems in it, you know, it's vagueness. Also, police officers are or should be trained to de-escalate situations like that. Um, we wouldn't expect a police officer to, uh, you know, resort to physical violence against the citizens simply because they were insulted. 
it's not to um, say that it's commendable to insult a police officer by any means, but uh, to create new criminal offenses that would have longstanding ramifications in people's lives generally, um, simply because they were expressing frustration uh, with policing tactics seems to us a clear violation of the First Amendment. You raised some concerns also about the, the rapid tempo of the legislature in those final days when vetoes were quickly being overridden. Uh, some bills were passed uh, hurriedly with very limited debate and no chance for public uh, involvement uh, given uh, the restrictions around the Capitol uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, and you also wrote that uh, some things were rising from the dead like zombies. Uh, <laughs> explain that. Yes, well, uh, one of the bills we talked about before, the bill that was an attempt to criminalize the publication of stories about police officers or government officials, um, was proposed before the session. It was widely panned in the press and otherwise, and it was immediately withdrawn. Uh, it came back you know, minutes before a hearing where I was testifying before um, a committee in the Kentucky House. And uh, the House actually, you know, started off by adopting that amendment, but then after our testimony, immediately moved to uh, revert back to the original bill, um, which was a much narrower provision. Uh, yet then again, another version of that bill was introduced as a floor amendment. Um, it did not get uh, considered on the last night before the veto period. And a third iteration of the bill came up then, you know, on the uh, without being publicly posted on the very last night or second to last night of the session. And now, you know, that bill sitting on the governor's desk, um, we at the Press Association have strongly encouraged the governor to veto it. But regardless of your view on the substance of the bill, I think everybody should be troubled that a bill that controversial um, can be, you know, uh, defeated in, in ways and keep coming back in different forms where it was passed out of the Kentucky House before the public ever even got to read the bill. Um, that should trouble everybody when it flies through at a few minutes before midnight, you know, on one of the last days of the legislative session. Overall. And part of the reason, yeah. Bill, I'll just note quickly, that bill is internally inconsistent and contradictory. It has multiple different definitions of the same term and provides overlapping protections. It's going to be a mess to administer it if it's not vetoed by the governor. And it's just really not a good way to be making law on important issues of transparency. Overall, when you look at back at the session and, and what happened as a, a First Amendment uh, advocate, uh, both uh, in the courts and certainly in, in, the, in the public arena, uh, do you, uh, how do you see overall this session uh, relates to uh, freedom of expression? Well, I'm really troubled by the trend, both, uh, both press freedom, but also individuals' freedom. This year, we saw an unprecedented number of bills attempting to regulate what citizens and journalists can say online about people from Kentucky. And, you know, the doxing bill is another example of that. Um, it's very problematic because it is trying to regulate from Frankfurt all speech worldwide on the internet about people sitting in Kentucky. And the state simply doesn't have the power to do that. The state and federal courts have recently reaffirmed that the due process clause of the constitution prohibits the state of Kentucky from regulating all speech on the internet from abroad or from another state. Um, similarly, the first amendment prohibits punishment for truthful speech. And we're, I'm concerned as a first amendment attorney and an advocate for press freedom and, and freedom of expression um, that legislators have taken an increasingly aggressive track to policing um, comments about 
favor groups of constituents that they think are being criticized unfairly online. Mr. That's, Buddy, uh, yeah. all, all of that said, let me ask you, and we, if we just have about a minute left, how concerned do you get about the, the, the vitriol and the, and the hurtful comments that, uh, that are out there just mindlessly posted or said these days? Uh, isn't there a pretty elusive balance? It's difficult. I mean, I won't pretend that there are not serious concerns about the kind of speech that's spread online, often anonymously. Those are very serious concerns. But, you know, those are the debates we see animating Washington around things like Section 230 and whether platforms like Facebook and Twitter should be immune from the content of the speech that, that our clients, publishers, you know, would be liable for if we put some of that same content in um, news stories. I think that's an interesting and valid debate. But unfortunately, no single state can solve that by trying to regulate within the boundaries of one state what people can say throughout the country or throughout the world on the internet. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Michael Abadi, First Amendment attorney from here in Kentucky. We appreciate it. And we'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers in a moment. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The U.S. Supreme Court considering a case that could upend college sports and the NCAA. The class action lawsuit claiming the NCAA is engaging in anti-competitive practices, breaking antitrust laws by capping benefits to student athletes. This case does not focus on pay for college athletes. It's about education-related benefits like computers, scholarships for graduate degrees, and other things not covered in the cost of attendance. Meanwhile, Protesting athletes are calling for the right to profit from their names, images, and likenesses. I spoke to Ohio State University Athletic Director Gene Smith. He is widely considered one of the most powerful people in collegiate sports. I asked him where he stands on this push for NIL rights. I was chosen to be a co-chair of the federal, state, and legislative working group a couple years ago to evaluate name, image, and likeness. And I believe that it, it should be implemented. Uh, what has happened uh, is different states across the country want it done differently. So that's why you have so many different bills across the country introduced in so many different places. Some people want student athletes to have more flexibility uh, around NIL uh, that that are that's in conflict uh, a little bit with some of the institution's perspectives. Hopefully there's federal legislation so we have consistency across the country and NCA legislation. So it depends. Right now there's it's a, it's a logger jam uh, of who is actually going to be able to implement the rules around NIL. We dive deeper into this issue this Sunday. Make sure you tune in then to Full Court Press. Very interesting issue and Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren is coming up at 1130 this morning on WKYT. That is Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for being along with us. We'll see you bright and early this week for WKYT this morning. And we